and welcome to Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about the people behind today's virology headlines, people working to understand viruses and how they affect you. We are talking with virologists, students and postdocs that belong to the American Society for Virology so that you can learn who they are and what they do. I am Larissa Thackray, and I am hosting this podcast from America's Heartland in St. Louis, Missouri. On August 19th, 2021, we talked with Ellen Suter, a graduate student in the Mulberger Lab at Boston University School of Medicine, who is investigating the virus-specific roles of certain filovirus proteins in virus replication and transcription, as well as how they modulate the cellular stress response. Ellen was a post-bac trainee in the Feldman Lab at Rocky Mountain Labs in Montana before joining her PhD program. Thanks for talking with us today. Um, Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? So I'm Ellen. I am a third, or I guess at this point, probably fourth technically year PhD student in microbiology at Boston University, and I study filoviruses. And can you tell us a little bit sort of like, when did you first become interested in science and then later virology? So science has been kind of a lifelong thing for me. I had a really good science teacher in elementary school who uh, did a great job of getting young students really engaged with science. Um, Shout out to Ms. Berry, wherever you are now. Uh, And I, so I've been interested in science for quite a long time. And in high school, I was lucky enough to get to participate in a, uh, I believe it was called a regional occupational program. Basically, my high, I went to high school in a university town, um, Davis, California, and we had a biotechnology class that you could take at the high school that would give you basic lab skills, and then after a semester, that would set you up with an internship at the local university, so University of California, Davis, and so I actually got the opportunity to participate in some microbial genetics research as a 17-year-old, which was extremely cool. And it also gave me kind of a taste for lab work, kind of the actual experience of research, and made me quite aware that I was probably going to be doing something with a pipette in my hand for as my career. Cool. And just thinking about to what you were talking about with your elementary school teacher, what was it about that science class or that teacher? Can you think of specifically what kind of engaged you? So people are always talking about how do we get, you know, kids more engaged in STEM? And so I'm just kind of curious, what specifically did they do to kind of sort of spark your enthusiasm? She had a lot of very um, interactive and tangible things to get students engaged in the material. Uh, there was a there was a class pet that was a corn snake, Kellogg the corn snake, which I thought I still think is a very good pun. And you know, we got to handle the snake if we wanted to. There were a couple different events where she would bring in local experts in whatever we were learning about. Um, so I have a salient memory of I don't remember the person's name, but some some brain researcher who had a lot of preserved brains uh, available for educational purposes. And we got to actually handle those um, like real preserved brains. Uh, I dropped, I believe a dolphin cerebellum on my sweater. It was a memorable experience and also pretty cool. Um, So very much the the hands-on experience, the, the demonstration that science is something that you do rather than something you learn about, I think, is a pretty key tool to getting kids engaged in science because 
if it's something you only see in a textbook, it's so far divorced from the reality of what it is as a field. Right, right. And then I guess, yeah, like when I was in high school, I mean, there were almost like no lab sort of based courses for science. And so it sort of sounds like you also got some more in a way hands-on education at that level. And so can you talk a little bit about that? So you were saying you did some microbial genetics as a 17 year old. Can you just kind of talk about sort of what specifically you were doing? Yeah. So in high school, the class, the biotechnology class, you know, taught initially taught basic skills like how to pipette, how to cast a DNA gel, um, bacterial transformation, um, you know, just the very core fundamentals of molecular biology that you use in a lot of fields, not just microbiology specifically, but that are relatively core skills to any molecular biology thing. And then um, the teacher for that class reached out to professors at UC Davis who had, you know, previously indicated interest in having high school interns. And so the lab that I, in which I got an internship was a um, yeast genetics lab. And um, basically I was passed off to a postdoc there to kind of like, here's noodling, um, you know, let them follow you around and learn some stuff. And um, the postdoc that I was working with uh, was did a wonderful job of explaining um, the materials. That was an extremely cool experience to get to see Part of what was exciting about it was the experience of learning that different disciplines of science, even within biology or microbiology, et cetera, take different approaches to answering questions. So that lab used yeast as model organism, but it was a genetics lab. And so the way that they answered questions about a protein's function was different from how a microbiologist specifically might or how a you know cell biologist might um and that i think was probably not a concept i'd really been introduced to before because it was not it's not really taught as part of most science curricula like how questions are how questions are answered i think is taught but how questions are asked is not right right very cool and what was the name of the lab again the lab was the higher lab and the postdoc who I assume has since moved on because that was, I certainly hope that he has because that was, you know, over a decade ago. Um, that was Damon Meyer. Can you tell then, so you, that was sort of your, you know, in a first introduction into, in a way to real uh, bench science. Can you kind of tell us a little bit then about your past? So you've been at, you know, a couple of different labs. How did you get to where you are today? And then I guess, thinking about it sort of like, how did you choose those particular labs or the, that particular um, university? Yeah, I mean, everybody is the sum of their experiences, right? So I chose UC Irvine because I, I've i been a nerd for a long time and I kind of already sort of planned to do further education past undergrad and assumed that I would need a solid foundation in science education. There was a while that I was actually wavering between microbiology and uh, astrophysics. I'm really glad that I went the direction I did, but I knew that I would need a solid foundation in the science that I was studying in order to actually make my way through grad school um, once I got there. So it was sort of like a, a long-term plan. Also um, at UC Irvine, I was, when I got my acceptance, I was also 
it into the campus wide honors program, which provided a much smaller group and community like academic community within the larger university that I was hoping would provide kind of a better uh, undergrad experience. And so of the UCs that uh, I was considering, um, that definitely seemed like the best option there. And the rest of my the rest of my career path, I would actually say, was heavily influenced by um, ditching a physics lecture in undergrad one time to go to a virology seminar. <laughs> so I'm not saying like skipping classes is good for your career, but sometimes it is um, because that was I had heard about that seminar from uh, an email that my um, viral pathogenesis professor, uh, Mike Buckmeyer had forwarded to our class and I had physics lecture at the time, but it was, you know, clicker based attendance class and I had forgotten my clicker. So I wouldn't get credit for going anyway. And I really wanted to go hear, um, Erica Ullman Sapphire talk about antibodies to Ebola virus a lot more than I wanted to go to physics. So I did. And, um, after after the seminar, my professor actually introduced me to the speaker and to a number of other professors um, who were also in attendance. And so that actually ended up setting me up with a number of connections just because I had to happen to go to the seminar. Um, and also, uh, you know, getting my professor's notice as somebody who was interested in the material uh, beyond just the class. And so I actually ended up uh, doing my undergrad thesis research with him, um, my pro the professor who was teaching that class. He also then provided a great recommendation for me for future work. And he also, he's one of those people who's been in the field forever and he knows so many people. And that really, it was, uh, it was really fortuitous that that kind of worked out as a coincidence for me. But um, sometimes ditching lectures to go to seminars is good. Um, so I was interested in, I actually, I heard about, um, the NIH post program, uh, through, from a TA from one of the classes I was in, um, in undergrad. And that was, it seemed like a really good way to get additional experience between undergrad and grad school. Um, my undergrad transcript alone was not strong enough. Um, I didn't feel my undergrad transcript alone was strong enough to, uh, get me where I wanted to go in terms of grad school. And I also felt that I probably should do further research and further training in that before moving on to the next stage of my career anyway. So doing a post-bac training program really seemed like the perfect option. And so I spent pretty much an entire summer between junior and senior year of undergrad making extensive lists of PIs that, um, you know, and trying to narrow that down, like where to send my emails once I submitted my application. Um, but again, I ended up getting pretty lucky. And um, the my my first top choice, um, the lab and the PI, who was the PI emailed, I emailed first, uh, Heinz Feldman, um, got back to me about two weeks later and was like, yeah, sure. Cause I had, I had emailed him of course saying like, Oh, can we have an interview? Um, and he got back to me about two weeks later saying, yeah, sure. You can, you can join our lab. So I was like, Oh, Oh, I'm going to be employed after undergrad. This is great. Um, and so I rented a place in Montana sight unseen, packed my bags and my cat and moved out there. 
um, and spent two years at Rocky Mountain Labs. And it was an amazing experience. And um, I'm extremely glad I did that. And I highly recommend um, to, you know, anybody that I know is in undergrad who is interested in grad school, I always try to push the, uh, do a post back, spend some years working in your field. It's great. Do it. You'll be so glad you did. Um, and I still am. So I did two years there um, and applied to grad schools during my second year. And again, locked out and got into where I wanted to go, which was Boston University. I was really interested in working in the needle. Um, I've been interested in filoviruses for quite a while. And so I was really hoping I could work in a lab that does hands-on filovirus research, which is in fact where I ended up. So I'm now in Dr. Elka Mielberger's lab and I do filovirus research. And um, so we do BSL-2 and BSL-4 research and I get to participate in both of those, which is awesome. Right. So can you tell us a little bit then sort of uh, what is your, I guess your sort of your central thesis and then some of the work that you've done, I guess some of the types of experiments that you're doing, some of the approaches, like how are you asking the questions sort of like you were talking about earlier and then some of your main findings as it were. Yeah. So I currently have sort of two main projects I'm pursuing in parallel. Um, and one of them is elucidating the function of the viral protein VP30 in Marburg virus replication and transcription, because there, as with most filovirus proteins, there's a lot more known about Ebola virus VP30. And we know that it's indispensable for um, pretty much the whole process. Um, there is a uh, secondary structure in the viral RNA that the proteins required to overcome um, for Ebola virus. Um, but it turns out that in a mini genome assay, you don't actually need this protein for Marburg virus. In order to produce infectious virus from a full length uh, DNA clone, you do need it. So there's something between expressing a single gene and actually creating infectious virus that protein has a different role in Marburg virus. And we think it's possible that it also has a, we think it's likely that it also has a role in Ebola virus that has not yet been established that might mirror what it, what the function it serves for Marburg virus. So um, I've been trying to pin that down using um, mini genome assays with our BSL2 system to model viral infectious cycles. Um, specifically focusing on the replication and transcription of the genome. Um, I'm also working on a transcription and replication competent um, uh, virus-like particle systems. There's already one established for Ebola virus, but um, to the best of my knowledge, there's not a published one for Marburg virus yet. Um, and that would allow us to investigate a couple more steps of the viral replication cycle and see like, where's this protein coming in? Um, and then, Another technique that we use is viral rescue, where much like a mini genome system, you transfect um, into cells, uh, support plasmids containing, uh, expressing the proteins that are necessary for um, replication and transcription of the viral genome. But then instead of uh, reporter expressing mini genome, you put in full length DNA. And if everything works correctly, you get infectious, full -length, you get infectious virus out of it we can model increasingly complex versions of the viral replication cycle using those. 
Can I ask actually, before you go on, so people might not be as familiar with Marburg. So can you kind of talk a little bit about the relationship between sort of the filoviruses and like Marburg in, in particular compared to say Ebola, which you know, is a little bit, I guess, more famous in your family. <laughs> it is, although it is actually the younger sibling. Um, so Marburg virus uh, emerged into the human population a little bit before Ebola did. Um, but it is also a filovirus. So there are multiple genera of filoviruses, the Marburg viruses, the Ebola viruses, the Quava viruses, and then there have been a number of other incomplete viral genomes of other genera of filoviruses detected in various animals by, um, you know, genome sequencing or um, by RNA sequencing and finding viral, uh, incomplete viral genomes. So like the, the DNA viruses, the strioviruses, the amnoviruses, some of them are in fish. That's weird. The, the ones that have emerged into the human population um, from which people have been able to isolate infectious virus and culture it and study it are the Marburg viruses and the Ebola viruses. Clinically, they present very similarly. I mean, really clinically, I would, I'm not a clinician, but I would guess that they are indistinguishable clinically. They cause a hemorrhagic fever. Um, They're quite unpleasant. Um, They, there are varying uh, case fatality rates between different species of each genus of virus um, from anywhere from, you know, 25 to 90%. um, Only one species of filovirus that we yet have encountered seems to be non-pathogenic in humans, and that is Restin virus, which is a member of the Ebola viruses. We have not yet encountered any non-pathogenic Marburg viruses. So, and how how closely related are Marburg and Ebola? So are they like 90% identical or are they more divergent than that? They are genetically very similar. Um, Some some of the viral genes are uh, more similar than others. So for example, the polymerase L, that gene is very highly conserved. Um, There's more diversity, there's more genetic diversity in the glycoprotein, for example. Um, The non-coding regions actually vary a good bit as well. The uh, trailer, the leader and trailer regions of the genomes um, vary both in length and sequence um, between both within genera, so like different Marburg viruses and different Ebola viruses have differing links from each other, um, but also between genera. Um, so that's that that is a source of variation, but ultimately they have the same overall genome structure. They have seven genes in the same order. It's you know single-stranded negative sense RNA virus. Um, Structurally, they're pretty similar, although the virion lengths are slightly different. Um, they replicate in the cell in a very similar manner in uh, viral inclusions within the cytoplasm. Um, so they're ultimately, they're very similar in a lot of respects. And what interests me is that as a family, although filoviruses are very similar, there are distinct differences and pinning down where the differences arise between um, both between genera and within genera um, in these otherwise very similar viruses is something that has definitely piqued my interest. Um, and actually the other project that I'm doing, the one that I actually spoke about at ASV is um, elucidating those differences in the context of how these viruses modulate cellular stress responses. Um, 
and how that might be involved in pathogenesis. Cool. And can you tell us a little bit, I guess, uh, to take a step back, so what is the cellular stress response and then how does your virus sort of interact with that? Yeah, so there are there are several types of cellular stress responses. Um, one, there I've been investigating two aspects. So one response I've been investigating is oxidate an oxidative stress response um, that uh, produces an antioxidant response, um, and that's interesting because there is a function of a Marburg virus protein that is not, not shared by its equivalent protein in Ebola virus um, that actually induces. Uh, the activation of the antioxidant response pathway, which induces the expression of proteins that can be inhibitory to Ebola virus when they're exogenously expressed. And so I'm curious to find out, like, is there a sweet spot of HO1 expression that is more favorable to Marburg virus? Is there, like, what is it about that protein expression that is inhibitory to Ebola virus? And what function, you know, what is Marburg virus doing that it actually maybe utilizes that, that Ebola virus is not. The other arm of cellular stress responses that I'm investigating is the integrated stress response, um, or the ISR, which is uh, the convergence of a number of pathways um, through which uh, kinases that detect different types of cellular stress, often associated with intracellular pathogens, for example, ER stress, the presence of double-stranded RNA, et cetera, um, those kinases converge to um, phosphorylate EIF2-alpha, it mediates a nearly global translation arrest. And so protein production largely shuts down in the cell. And um, what happens as a result of that is the initiation complexes um, that would start translation in the cell instead aggregate um, into these like, they aggregate together and then with uh, translation associated proteins into these like little liquid phase separated droplets um, in the cytoplasm called stress granules. And so many viruses um, modulate that pathway. Um, it's hardly novel to say that like Ebola, ooh, Ebola viruses do something here. That's no, that, that's known that viruses modulate this um, because it's generally not fav favorable for a virus that uses the translational machinery of the cell to have that translational machinery shut down and locked away. So many viruses modulate that response. And in a previous student in our lab's work um, in investigating whether uh, Ebola virus infection induced stress granules within the cell, we actually found that um, it does not induce stress granule formation. Overexpression of one protein um, of Ebola virus, VP35, can actually partially inhibit stress granule formation. And particularly of interest is the, we found that a number of protein components of stress granules were aggregated within the viral inclusions in what appear to be separate liquid phase separated droplets within the inclusions, which are also these membraneless uh, compartments within the cytoplasm where the replication happens. Um, and they weren't associated with ribosomes, as far as we can tell. So we're not really sure what the virus is doing with these. Um, and we don't see the same kind of behavior in Marburg virus infected cells, which is kind of a surprise given the, the mechanisms by which the viruses replicate their genomes and um, transcribe and express their genes are all fairly similar. Um, it's a bit surprising that that is different. We also found different um, 
distributions of some of the cellular proteins that were aggregated within uh, Ebola virus inclusions. Um, specifically, HUR is uh, a human antigen R. It's a normally nuclear protein that we found uh, in this sort of like sandy aggregate pattern um, within Ebola virus inclusions and within Marburg virus inclusions although the other proteins that we found in Ebola virus inclusions were not present in Marburg virus. And so we're thinking maybe these represent different functional um, groups of proteins, at least in terms of how they relate to the virus. I'm particularly interested in finding out what the virus is doing with those proteins. If anything, it also may just be a mechanism to sequester them to prevent some other cellular processes. So that that's been kind of my more um, fun and descriptive project because it's a little bit less hypothesis driven. Um, whereas my, uh, my VP30 project is a bit more straightforward. There are so many open questions with the viral modulation of uh, cellular stress responses and um, redistribution of cellular proteins that, I mean, it's too, it's too enticing not to follow up. It's really interesting. It's just kind of fun. Also, I love doing um, imaging-based projects. I I am a bit of an artist at heart, and I do enjoy uh, getting to do, just make some pretty pictures on a microscope sometimes. Right. And so um, what's next? Are you thinking about get it doing sort of an academic postdoc or going into um, industry? Or have you, have you sort of thought a little bit about that? I have thought about it a bit. Um, so far, I am still interested in remaining uh, in either academia or maybe government research. I really enjoyed um, the time I spent at an NIH lab, so I could easily see doing intramural NIH research, at least for a time. Um, the next step is presumably uh, finding a postdoc position. And I have not yet started looking because I think I'll probably be here for a few more years. But from there, I think that might I think the experience of spending some time as a postdoc will probably give me a bit more perspective on where I want to go next. So, and then just finishing up, what has this last year been like for you? I mean, it's been, I always ask people, because it's been a very uh, interesting time uh, to be a virologist. So what has it been like for you sort of as a person and also as a virologist? Well, it has it has done some weird things to my hair because I spent a lot of time in the BSL-4 last year and you have to wash your hair every time you exit. And sometimes that was multiple times a day, like all week. Um, so there's that. Uh, but in, in a more serious sense, it has been it has been a weird but very fulfilling experience to get to participate in pandemic response research. Um, I don't claim to be an expert in coronaviruses by any means. It's a completely different type of virus than what I generally study. But our lab kind of set ourselves up as a virology services core uh, of a sort for a lot of labs, um, both within our institution and outside of it in the greater Boston area. And so we did a lot of um, infect, pr basically producing infected samples for other labs. Um, testing a lot of antiviral drugs for people who had a drug that they designed for something else that they thought might be effective. It ended up being a strangely productive in terms of educational experiences um, for me. 
because I ended up learning a lot of new techniques in terms of image-based analysis, image quantification, um, really kind of streamlining our lab's process for uh, any kind of antiviral uh, compound testing. So I also got a chance to be a part of a couple really massive collaborations we did with um, a number of other labs. And that was really cool just to be part of those huge endeavors. It was really nice to get to feel like I was actually doing something instead of feeling, I, th I think we've all felt pretty helpless um, in the face of such a devastating global event that is still ongoing. Um, but it it definitely helped to be able to at least feel like I was doing something. Um, plus, it gave me an excuse to keep coming into lab and not be, uh, you know, not be completely isolated alone with my cat, whom I love. But I think eight months of only my cat's company might still not be ideal. So yeah, it was it was it was a really cool experience. Um, to be involved in that. I ended up having to kind of, I, I postponed my qualifying exams um, because I was uh, working about 70 hour weeks at the lab at the time I was supposed to do it. And I had to email the department uh, chair and explain to her that I, I wasn't able to uh, have any time left to like cook or do laundry or eat. And I definitely didn't have any leftover time to like read and write. And I needed a little, a few more months for, <laughs> needed a few more months for the research to calm down um, before I could actually devote the time that, you know, devote the necessary amount of time to uh, preparing for my qualifying exams. And um, she was understanding about that. And so I ended up postponing them for a few months, but then breaking off a lot of the um, SARS-CoV-2 research that I had been participating in so that I could then prepare for uh, my qualifying exams um, and then have been sort of gradually shifting back into field of virus research since then. Well, thanks so much for talking with us today and I uh, wish you good luck on your field of virus research. We'll be interested in hearing about um, both of your projects um, uh, based on some of your findings. So take care and thanks for talking to us. Thank you so much. This has been Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about people who study viruses. This is your host, Marissa Thackray, and thanks for listening. You can find us on Google, Apple, Amazon Music, Spotify, and other podcast providers, or at lmtv.podbean.com.